The soundscape, the sonic environment is incredibly alive. If you're able to echolocate, you just increase that liveliness to many orders of magnitude because now every sound that's being made, whether it's, I mean, all these birds chirping out here, planes flying overhead, all of that is reflecting off of every surface that's around me right now. And so it gets it gets magnified into not just a soundscape, it gets magnified into a scene. He lost both eyes to cancer when he was just 13 months old. But Daniel the toddler wasn't terribly fond of limits. A year or so after losing his vision, he was wriggling out of his bedroom window, across the lawn, over chain-link fences, through multiple neighbors' yards, and out into the wide, wide world, not unlike the pokey little puppy. As he explored that wide, wide world very precociously, Daniel Kish began to develop the skill of echolocating. A chain-link fence is perfect for a toddler, perfect for hands and feet to just fit right into the to the wires. I mean, they're the easiest thing in the world to climb. And it wasn't terribly tall. I guess in those days, people pretty much knew, you know, to whom the blind kid belonged. So they called the police and had me return home. And yes, I was scolded and a lock was put on my door. But, you know, I, I didn't escape out the door. I escaped out the window. Daniel Kish is a leading expert on human echolocation, and therein lies the reason for a nickname he's acquired, The Real Batman. There's a nonprofit charity he's founded, World Access for the Blind, and he's taught echolocation and other life skills to hundreds of blind children around the world. Given his out-the-window, day-or-night escapades as a toddler, it's hardly surprising to learn that he does not mentor his students to be passive or compliant. I'm Marcus Smith. In the next two episodes of Constant Wonder, we're going to be imagining Daniel Kish's perspective on the things around him. How does he experience stuff? He's already used the term soundscape, those ever-present enveloping sounds or vibrations that he relies on for navigation. 20 seconds into this episode, he echolocated with a click, a fairly inconspicuous click, unless you had been told what to listen for. Later on, you'll hear him demonstrating these signals and his range from soft to loud, and we'll get to hear him explain why they need to vary in strength. He propels sounds out into the surrounding soundscape. Those sounds bounce back off reflective surfaces, which have varying degrees of reflectivity, and thus he's able to navigate his way around and sense what's going on. Kish has been imparting this technique to students throughout the world for over 25 years. I think of the environment as being basically a collection of information and experiences. So we can query the environment for information, for experiences. You know, when a sighted person looks at the environment, there it's almost you could think of it kind of like reading, reading a book, say. So you're reading a book, you're gathering information from the environment visually. An echolocator actually queries the environment, actually sends out signals, actually sends out signals that you can think of as questions. Where are you and what are you? Where are you and what are you? Where are you and what are you? So the, the quality of the question helps to determine the quality of the answer. And so that's why I think that the signal characteristics are important. How you deliver that signal, the strategies you use to deliver that signal, you know, for, I mean, simple things, like if I'm clicking down at the ground, 
then I'm less likely to detect what's above me. And if I'm clicking to the right, I'm less likely to detect effectively what's to the left of me. So one thing that proficient echolocators will do, must do, is to scan. We scan with our heads in much the same way that a sighted person moves their eyes, scans with their eyes. This whole trick of scanning with the ears while clicking to query the environment, you know, it almost sounds like a superpower, something from X-Men. But Kish says it's just how the world works. And if you or I could learn to use our ears to their full capacity, well, then our environment would register with us in a whole new way. Every environment has its own acoustic signature. My standing here in a a 10 by 10 room versus my stepping out here into a much larger living space that has a lot more reverb to it versus my stepping outside. And the minute I step outside, all reverb just disappears. And that's not subtle. So we all know that when we walk into a, you know, a shopping mall, for example, that there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of chaos and people moving around, and a lot of noise and music and things like that. But you can up the ante. You could walk through a construction zone. You could walk through a, a rock concert. You could walk through a, a busy bar. You could walk on the tarmac. So you can always get louder and louder and louder and more and more congested. Echolocation kind of puts the continuity back into the acoustic environment. So a proficient echolocator is not only just hearing the sounds being made by others or the sounds being produced by events. We're hearing all of the sounds that are reflected by those events. Every mechanical thing that happens in the atmosphere produces a sound. And then every surface that exists in an environment reflects all of those sounds. So for an echolocator, you you quickly reach a much greater intricacy, if you will, or, or a much greater succession of layers to the soundscape. And so how well those surfaces reflect sounds depend in part on the quality of the sounds and the quality of the environment that you're in. So that's one of the reasons why I advocate the use of producing your own signal. So in my case, it's a tongue click. It's fairly famous. And it's a, it, that click is a, a signal that my brain has tuned itself to, and it creates the exact quality that I need under my control to produce the best image I can produce regardless, well, to some degree regardless, of the environment, regardless of the ambiance around me. And there are a lot of strategies behind those signals. So if the ambiance around me is relatively quiet, then only a relatively low intensity or amplitude signal is necessary. Whereas if the environment is much louder, a much stronger signal is necessary. If the environment is moving quickly, in other words, you have a lot of moving parts, then a signal may need to be produced more frequently. Whereas if an environment is familiar to the user or an environment is relatively less complicated, then fewer utterances of the signal are needed. An echolocator forms metal pictures, pictures painted in sound, You know, so many of our verbal expressions are visual, even the simple notion of a mental picture. 
Well, Kish checks out the surfaces around him. He takes the sonic measure of what's out there, and apparently something takes shape in his mind. Is this technique of his own devising? Well, I had to ask him how much of this is new and how much of it is his own innovation. Most blind people will echolocate to a degree. What we've often heard in the past, you know, what's so special about this? I used to echolocate or I teach echolocation or whatever, and which is one of the reasons we coined the term flash sonar was to differentiate our <laughs> brand, if you will, of echolocation from more traditional concepts of echolocation, which I would consider to be much more rudimentary. So, so most blind people who use echolocation, either consciously or unconsciously, are using it in a, in a much more rudimentary way. So, so something that distinguishes a proficient echolocator from someone who's less proficient is basically just the amount of information you're able to get the amount of detail you're able to get, at what distance you're able to get it. So a proficient echolocator is going to be able to resolve much more detail from a much greater distance, much more quickly, and with much less fatigue. I'm trying to get into the head of one of the foremost teachers and proponents of these techniques. It's an early childhood that he starts emitting sounds and clicks intuitively. They help him get around, Many other blind children have no doubt stumbled onto these tricks as well. It's not like Daniel Kish is a Gutenberg or an Edison presenting some entirely new gizmo to the world. But in a moment, you'll hear how he has expanded the repertoire to include something he calls flash sonar. It's about getting even more detail into that mental picture, more nuance, better resolution. Echolocation by humans, not by bats or whales, but by humans. It's got me thinking now of the thrilling, improbable tale, Thunderdog, by Michael Hingson. On 9-11, Hingson and his guide dog, Roselle, were on the 78th floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. The first plane struck. Roselle and Hingson navigated their way down the stairs and led roughly 30 people to safety. Relevant to our purposes here, Hingson is also a very proficient echolocator. And the cane he uses, I've just learned this, by the way, the cane fits right in with his echolocation strategy, not just for probing things, but tapping, you know, to generate those sounds that reveal the surroundings. When Hingson enters a building for the first time, he taps through it to create a mental map. And even in a parking lot, he says he can navigate through without ever touching or tapping a car. Roselle in all of this is a teammate with him. Now, I've mentioned Michael Hingson and his book Thunderdog just to point to one specific example that tells me Daniel Kish is not the wholesale inventor of echolocating, nor would he ever claim to be. And frankly, who knows who that first experimenter in this field may have been. What Daniel Kish has brought to the field is, well, for one thing, flash sonar, but also heightened levels of public awareness and appreciation the number of people he has helped achieve greater confidence as they have finessed their own skills, it's just inspiring. So now this thing he calls flash sonar. How does Daniel Kish differentiate it from echolocating? Flash sonar is a brand of active echolocation. So echolocation can be divided into active versus passive. Uh, passive sonar versus passive echolocation. So like, you know, the, the, the idea came up in submarines where if you had an active sonar, you could be heard. Your signal could be heard. It could be detected. It could be dangerous. So uh, sometimes you turn off that active sonar 
and you go passive, meaning that you're just using the ocean environment to hear what's around you. Why don't uh, submarines always go passive? Well, because it's harder. You, you simply cannot do as well. You cannot resolve as detailed an image from as far away just by using the passive environment. So producing an active signal intensifies and clarifies the image and expands the sphere of awareness. So we call it flash sonar because of the characteristics of the signal. It's a, it's a very quickly pulsed signal that the user has control over. And many students describe it, especially those who've had experience with vision in, in their past, describe it as a flash, like a flash of a camera. So is this intermittent clicking? It's intermittent clicking, yeah. yeah. How, how much time elapses between clicks? So that, that depends. That's a, that's a strategy thing. So uh, the more familiar you are with the space, or the simpler the space, or the quieter the space, the less uh, volume you need in the click. So it might be something like that. It doesn't take much. Uh, and it might not be very frequent. Um, I probably have clicked almost hardly at all this whole time as I've been walking around my property because it's pretty quiet, because I know every inch of it. Yeah, I mean, it's not that hard. So, uh, But if this were someone else's property and I were doing this interview, well, first of all, I'd probably be out here with my cane, which I'm not right now because I don't need to be. But secondly, I probably would be clicking more frequently because I would be finding my way around as I delivered the interview. I would need to hear the surfaces around me. I would need to hear where they are. I would need to hear where I'm going. <laughs> I would need to, you know, to, to kind of memorize the space using echolocation, whereas I've lived here for 21 years. I've already done all that. What is a power click, and when do you use a power click? You can use a power click. I'm going to go out into the front yard here. You can use a power click to detect things that are far away or to cut through a very noisy environment. So a click like that, I mean, we're talking quite possibly 100 decibels, maybe 110 decibels can wipe out a microphone like this. So a condenser microphone is just going to swallow that up and compress it to almost nothing. But a click like that could travel, you know, 50 meters in, in a direction to detect things that are far away. And I have students who have much better power clicks than mine. But it can also cut through noise. So if I'm in a noisy environment, like, a, I don't know, a noisy train station or maybe a construction zone or just a metropolitan area with a lot of traffic, I can, I can extract an image from noisy circumstances just by clicking quite loudly. And because the environments are so loud, the volume or amplitude of the click doesn't necessarily draw attention to itself because you're in a loud situation anyway. So it's not the sort of thing that most people around you tend to register. Now, the generation of a click, is it always done with a mouth? It can be done by hand. Um, it can be done with finger snaps. I don't finger snap as well as I click. And I'm rubbish snapping with my left hand and I use my cane on my right. So um, some people use handheld clickers. So I think I have one here somewhere. Some people use, yeah, so it might look like these little castanets here. So you might put that on the handle of your cane 
Or if you're, you know, a kid and you like to ride your bicycle, you might put this on the handlebar of your bicycle. This works nearly as well and in some ways better than a tongue click. I have a lot of students, especially younger students or students who have hearing impairments using these handheld clickers. You heard right. It's not just the sighted population that enjoys riding bicycles, but we'll get to that a little bit later. While speaking with Kish, I found myself listening, which is what I do for a job, actually, but listening, listening far more attentively than I typically do. He must have had a high-quality microphone on his end because, as maybe you've already detected, he's been in and out of his house. And relying on the soundscape alone, I pretty much could tell whether he was in or out. I hope you caught this, too. It's not just birds tweeting away when he moves outside. And I'm not talking about stereophonic sound, either, that separates what's on the left from what's on the right. I'm talking about the array of different textures and the hard or soft reflections that I've been able to hear. All of this reveals spaces that can be differentiated. Now, you might think that somebody who lives by differentiating sound textures would feel adrift when caught in perfect silence. You know how sighted people most often find total darkness, well, unsettling. Kish has a relationship with silence that's possibly going to surprise you. Have you ever stepped into an echoless room? Not just a quiet room, but an actual anechoic chamber. Sometimes a science museum will have one of these. Equipped with surfaces, they're intended to absorb, to suck up sound without letting it bounce back. Well, I say intended because when your echolocation is as keen as Kish's, well, you're never completely fooled. I find anechoic chambers to be extraordinarily relaxing, and I wish I had one of my own to sleep in. Uh, some people ask, what is my favorite sound? And I, I like to say that it's silence, because I'm processing multiple, multiple, multiple layers of, of and nuances of sound every day all the time. And I dare say I don't miss much, so all of that gets processed, and then just I have to decompress from time to time from all of that. I've been in a couple of anechoic chambers, and what I would say, generally speaking, is that to me, now I'm, I'm a relatively proficient echolocator, so it's a little hard. My skills are relatively robust, and one of the things that differentiates someone who's highly proficient from someone who's less proficient or less experienced is the robustness of the skill. How difficult is it to hoodwink or subvert the, the integrity of the skill? Uh, when I click in an anechoic chamber, it doesn't sound wallless. I can hear, I can hear surfaces. I can hear foam. I mean, obviously, the point of an anechoic chamber is to make any surfaces in the room stand out. So if there's furniture in the room and such, that stands out much more in a much more pronounced way. But if you remove all surfaces, then what it kind of sounds like is it sounds like I'm surrounded by a wire fence in an endless field is kind of what it sounds like. So there is an impression of surrounding walls. The foam is detectable. You know, bats are not going to run into these foam baffles, and neither would I. But yes, it is highly, highly, highly absorbent, and it does give the illusion of being in infinite space surrounded by a kind of transparent bubble. I mean, I can hear the foam. No matter how much baffling you're going to put, you're putting that baffling against something hard. Eventually, you're going to hit a concrete shell. So that foam 
has to be transparent to a degree for it not to be heard, right? But then behind it's going to be some kind of something, some kind of surface. So you can't really have it both ways. You can't have foam that's so transparent that it can't be heard and yet uh, transparent enough that it hides the surface behind it. So, Daniel, now I'm kind of wanting you to take us to a specific soundscape of your choosing, someplace you like. doesn't have to be a spectacular place, you know, Yosemite, Lincoln Memorial, Coney Island. <laughs> you pick. I like castles. Castles are highly textured. And while I, I'm not able to discern any particular piece of or, ornamentation, collectively I can tell that there is ornamentation, and so castles is a very live a very alive reflection. Uh, even certain kinds of architecture where you have a lot of ornamentation on the architecture, you have a lot of buttresses, or you have a lot of, I don't know, balconies, things like that that create a live surface. I mean, that's not subtle. There's a pretty substantial distinction between what I would call live surfaces that really sing back to you with richness, which, which conveys a sense of elegance, versus, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, architecture that's more utilitarian and more, you know, clean and more modern. Also, domes are, are pretty special. So I've been in tropical gardens, for example, uh, where they'll have these dome structures over these gardens. And when you find the apex of the dome, your every sound that you make and every sound that's being made in that dome is highly, highly resonant. It's a very special experience. It's a it's kind of a special surround sound experience when you're able to find that acoustic focus. If you're able to echolocate, you just you just increase that order of liveliness to many to many orders of magnitude because because now every sound that's being made, whether it's I mean all these birds chirping out here, planes flying overhead, all of that is reflecting off of every surface that's around me right now. And so it gets it gets magnified into not just a soundscape, it gets magnified into a scene. Well, maybe I should invite you now to magnify a scene for us, a specific castle, maybe, I don't know, a couple of examples that you remember, something along the lines of favorite soundscapes from your memory of visiting castles. Uh, there was a castle in Chemnitz. There's also a school for the blind there that's over 100 years old that has very ornate architecture. And what I remember of it is that when I was in the courtyard and I clicked, I got this whole cascade, this whole kind of domino effect of, of echo response. And what that suggests is that there's layer upon layer upon layer of ornamentation that, that, moves, along the, um, that moves along the surface of the castle. It does create an image. It doesn't create the kind of image that I could exactly sculpt. I mean, I've done I've done the the demonstration where I walk into a scene that I'm not familiar with and I sketch that scene. I can sketch that scene, but I I'm able to sketch you know elements of a scene in terms of navigating through them. I I can't really look up at a castle and start sketching the ornamentation or architecture of the castle. But certainly, as I move through the castle and through the environment or around the castle, there's one in. You know, there's one in France, and I do not remember the name of the chateau, but those who know chateaus would know this one. It's the one that's surrounded by water. A lot of them are surrounded by water, but this one had water running through the castle. So you could actually canoe through the castle using the waterways. 
And I, I was hoping one day, I never did this, but I was hoping to actually do a workshop with blind people from around France and all get into these canoes and learn to echolocate our way around the castle and through the buttresses uh, while, while rowing these boats, basically using it to navigate the boats. The Chateau de Chenonceau spans the River Cher. It has several stonework arches. You may have seen this. It's in France's famous Loire Valley. I, myself, I've only seen photos, but gorgeous photos of this beloved tourist spot. And yet those photos afford me nothing in the way of a soundscape. Virtual tours on YouTube, they sometimes are underscored with lush romantic music. That obliterates whatever sounds were there naturally. Maybe somebody has recorded the actual lapping of water, the narrowing of the sound picture when you're seated in a canoe and floating underneath that watery arcade. Eventually, some YouTuber will post those pure, unadulterated canoe sounds without any string quartet backup. But for now, enjoy this generic sample of lapping water sounds. Well, now, if Daniel Kish can canoe on a river, what's to keep him from riding a bicycle? I found this to be nearly beyond belief, and Kish conceded as much in his laugh when I asked him about his biking. I think you have to be reasonably cautious. I mean, you have to know what you're doing. You have to be able to get enough information from around you to be able to navigate and not run into stuff. It's not for everyone. I mean, even I pick and choose my environments with some care. Yeah, well, echolocation, you can't detect drop-offs for one thing. So if you're riding in a situation where there could possibly be a drop-off, that's a bad idea. But echolocation, you know, it has its it has its challenges with regard to resolution. So I mean, look, navigation is a complex process and it's rarely done with just echolocation. It's usually done with a combination of skill sets bicycling tends to isolate you to almost only echolocation. I mean, there's what's going on beneath your bike wheels and things like that. That's important. And there's memory and mapping and also things like that, which are important. But you don't have your cane in front of you. If you're bicycling alone and you're not on a tandem, then you don't necessarily have people around you telling you what to do or where to go. So you just need to know what you're doing if you're, if you're, <laughs> if you're bicycling and you're echolocating. Yeah, you'd probably want to be pretty careful trying that one out. You probably shouldn't pick just any old street either. As long as I'm talking about streets, they are shared spaces, a shared environment, and they can get not just busy but noisy. I asked Daniel Kish about his take on noise pollution generally, wondering how it affects the blind. This was actually the only time in our conversation when he expressed any kind of frustration. Well, to get a picture of what noise pollution must be like for those without sight, just imagine a nighttime scene in our world in an urban place. Uh, everything awash in bright lights, car headlights harsher, brighter, LED billboards, those have become very intrusive. You get to feel weary by the time you've just driven a few blocks across town. Transfer now that oppressive feeling of modern driving at night to what sound navigation is like for the blind with all the noise pollution in our world. I told Daniel Kish I get frustrated just thinking about it. I do too. 
I do too. I'm losing patience with it. It's becoming harder and harder. I grew up in a rural environment. In fact, I live in a rural environment. You can look around this. It's pretty rural, actually. It's a pocket of ruralness in urban Long Beach. You know, I'll say a couple of things about that. It's a mixed bag. In many ways, the world is more friendly to blind people than it used to be. And in many ways, it's less friendly to blind people than it, it used to be. So there's always a balance that has to be struck there. One of the ways it's becoming less friendly is that it is becoming louder. Street crossings in particular are becoming more and more complex. Traffic patterns are becoming more and more complex, less easy to grasp. Environmental spaces are becoming more complex, more layered, more visually marked up, especially in these days of the pandemic, relying a lot more on public signage and information boards and things like that. So in many respects, the environment has become less and less friendly to blind individuals, which basically means that blind individuals need to develop more comprehensive, effective strategies in order to continue moving forward, which is one of the things that I'm ever in the process of doing. So I've been blind for 55 years. I've been teaching for 25 years. And there isn't a year that goes by that I don't ask myself, what can we do better? What can we adjust? What can we amend? What can we modify? What can we do better to, to address an environment that's becoming more and more complex? Well, there you have it, an introduction to Daniel Kish. Well, who he is, what he does, what he stands for, and with everything you've heard him say, how surprised should anybody be by his can-do attitude when it comes to things like addressing noise pollution? He just takes on challenges. That's who he is. Even if he'd sometimes welcome a quiet break in an anechoic room. If your baseline is an independent spirit, you move forward over a fence... In a canoe, on a bike, you safeguard freedom of movement. And as you move, move, move along, you might just become a teacher to others who can benefit from your skill and wisdom. There's a good overview of the scope of his mentoring work at the website visioneers.org. We're going to visit a little bit more with Daniel Kish in our next episode of Constant Wonder. He'll tell us why blind children should be encouraged to climb trees and why blind cooking students should go ahead and use a sharp knife maybe even a hot stove. We'll also welcome another fellow to the conversation, somebody who happens to be an old friend of Constant Wonder. Once the horse settled down and was just clopping along to the rhythm of whatever I was singing, I was quite comfortable in the saddle. I sang several songs, and then when I got off, the horse gave a really uh, pleasant little whinny of contentment. Serenading a horse isn't exactly what you'd call echolocation, but just like Daniel Kish... Robert Just is every bit intrepid in his ventures. He has traveled from Broadway to Hawaii, from Alberta to Ecuador. Be sure to join us for a companion episode about living boldly with blindness. I'm Marcus Smith. This episode was produced by Eric Schultzka and Daniel McDonald. And we'd like to thank Daniel Kish for a delightful conversation and making this possible. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. BYU Radio.